Welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively talks about India's space program. My guest today is Arup Dasgupta, who served in ISRO between 1970 and 2005 and retired as the Deputy Director of the Space Application Centre in ISRO. Arup began his professional career in the Satellite Instructional Television Experiment, or the SITE Experiment, which was the world's first direct-to-community TV broadcast experiment using the US ATS-6 satellite. He then moved on into remote sensing and was involved in the first experimental remote sensing satellite Bhaskara and later operational satellites IRS-1 through P6 ResourceSat. In this episode of the New Space India podcast, we explored the realm of remote sensing applications from a historical perspective and the current trajectory of its use within India and provide some future perspectives. Arup, uh, welcome to the New Space India podcast. Thank you so much for taking time and doing this episode with me. Thank you for having me, Narayan. I saw your LinkedIn profile and uh, it said that uh, you graduated sometime in uh, 70 and then, uh, you know, uh, early 70, you, you joined ISRO. So you have uh, quite a long career, almost 50 years of uh, knowledge of space-related activities. Uh, uh, you know, you, you must have uh, a lot to share in terms of uh, the transition of technology and how it has matured over time. I'm really looking forward to this episode in that regard. So uh, one of the uh, questions that I want to kick off this uh, podcast episode with is, uh, when you, you know, started your career in ISRO, did you see remote sensing as a sector uh, that would come up uh, or you know were the early days of site experiment was it just a transition how was your beginnings yeah actually after i graduated in electrical communication engineering i uh, got an opportunity to work in isro on the site project and that was basically a communication project and at that time i really didn't know much about remote sensing i knew a few people were uh, talking about it but uh, i never paid much attention uh but it was only around 1975 76 when uh, professor yashpal who was our director at that time uh, we had just finished site and i was kind of at a loose end professor yashpal called me and said uh, arup why don't you consider uh, switching over to remote sensing and i was pretty taken aback i said i mean you know i am i am a hardcore communication engineer and what do i do with all these physicists and others so he gave a big laugh and he said uh, rup you have been working on uh, extension services under site and that is what uh, you need to now do for remote sensing and that's how he pushed me into a unit which was then known as user cell he made me a manager over there and then from there on i started uh, learning about remote sensing you yes, you talked about professor yashpal giving you this direction so was this something that uh, isro had come to know from other peers as in other space agencies that they were also taking a a look into remote sensing and especially the societal applications of remote sensing or was this something within isro that came up yeah actually you know in fact uh, much later i came across a quotation from professor uh, uh, vikram sarabhai and this is 1969 Uh, when we had the first conference on the peaceful use of outer space this was in vienna and uh, dr sarabhai was the chair and this is something very interesting which he said and i think it has relevance to what uh, your question is he said when we came to vienna we thought 
that the areas of most immediate practical application would be communications, meteorology, and navigation in that order. But one of the most striking things to emerge has been the appreciation of the great potentiality of remote sensing devices. And then he goes on to say that, uh, for example, in cartography, uh, the benefit can be as much as 18 is to 1. And uh, then he goes on to say the time has come to interest uh, meteorologists, hydrologists, surveyors, agriculture specialists, and other groups in such programs. So this was actually, you see, this was actually what uh, Vikram Sarabhai uh, had almost, you can say, vision uh, in 1969. And then it was actually turned into reality by uh, creating a small group in uh, Vikram Sarabhai Space Center in Trivandrum. Uh, at that time, of course, it was not known as VSSC, it was known as SSTC. And there was a small group created there uh, in which he put in a few scientists uh, like Professor Pisharuti, uh, who is really known as the father of remote sensing in India, and then one Dr. T.A. Hariharan and uh, Professor uh, Praful Bhavsar uh, and a few others. And of course, then they moved to the physical research laboratory. And that's where the whole remote sensing activity started. And uh, what they had done uh, was that uh, they uh, actually, after seeing uh, Vikram Sarabhai's uh, interest and uh, you know getting leads from him, they uh, went to NASA. And from them, they borrowed uh, a couple of Hasselblad cameras, you know, large format 70mm cameras. And uh, you know some film because you needed the color infrared film which was not available in India, and then they flew it on a helicopter over uh, coconut palms in uh, down south in Kerala, and uh, the idea was to see whether they could detect those coconut palms which were affected by a disease called the coconut wilt disease, and they found that uh, there were many uh, trees which had the disease, and the disease was actually uh, manifest in the crown. And if you look at the tree from the ground level, you wouldn't know that this tree was affected. So this was the first example which they did of uh, using uh, remote sensing to detect uh, crop disease. Absolutely. I think uh, that's a very important piece of history. So when you talked about this borrowing of the car camera from, uh, from NASA and flying this, you know, the transition from doing something in airspace and then outer space is very different. And the challenges are, of course, uh, extremely different as well, especially in terms of uh, managing the electronics and the communication and so many other things. Was uh, ISRO prepared for such a transition from just flying from a helicopter to then thinking of building uh, a satellite where you know, things like mirrors, uh, sensors, all of them really available for this kind of transition? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, you see, uh, just after this experiment, there was a small group created called uh, Remote uh, Sensing Division. At that time, you know, uh, Space Application Center had not been formed. We were just all separate divisions. And uh, Remote Sensing and Meteorology Division was formed with uh, Professor Pishadruti leading the uh, group. And uh, they uh, co continued to start uh, working uh, with aerial surveys. And of course, they bought the Hasselblad cameras and everything, and the film had to be imported. But at the same time, the very interesting thing that happened was that uh, Landsat had been launched somewhere around, I think, 1971. I'm not very sure. And uh, Landsat, uh, at that time, the Landsat data was available only uh, if you become a principal investigator. So I think one of the senior persons in ISRO, I think it was Professor Chitnes, 
or maybe it was uh, Professor Pichardotti himself, they became the, uh, the principal investigator and we started getting data from NASA covering whole of India. And uh, that uh, was really an eye-opener. And uh, because we had this uh, idea that, you know, it's useful for the country. So we started calling up uh, people from different uh, departments and uh, even universities to show them uh, what we uh, what satellite imagery can do and uh, you know uh, growing an interest in uh, utilizing some of these kind of uh, technologies parallelly uh, we started looking at uh, what could be done with whatever little meager resources we had and around that time if you remember uh, we had launched a satellite called aryabhatta that was our first satellite so it was uh, quickly decided that we will now take aryabhatta uh, uh, the the basic structure and in that we are going to put a camera uh, which was uh, called a super vidicon and uh, and a couple of microwave radiometers in fact the microwave radiometers were a bit of an afterthought because uh, one of the uh, persons here professor opn kala was very keen on uh, trying that out so uh, uh, Bhaskara 1, that was the first satellite that was made and uh, it was launched from Soviet Union. Uh, we had a big hiccup because uh, one of the cameras uh, failed to operate and that failure was uh, led, uh, was uh, found to be uh, due to uh, arcing in the high voltage supply to the Vidicon camera uh, due to outgassing. So the second camera was not switched on. We waited for, I think, about uh, five, six months. And then when it was switched on, uh, it started giving pictures. Now, those pictures were just one kilometer resolution pictures, but they were fantastic. And uh, the whole country was absolutely, you know, taken up by this. Even though Landsat was at that time 70 meters and people would ask these kind of questions. That what can you do with a one kilometer data when you have a 70 meter uh, resolution? But nevertheless, uh, since we had done it, it was our effort. So we made a lot of effort to get people interested in this. And in parallel, and this is where the interesting thing happens. And in parallel, the committee was set up. And uh, Dr. Hariharan was the in charge of the committee. And I, as far as I remember, Chandrasekhar uh, was the member secretary. And they were tasked with finding out what can be a configuration of a remote sensing satellite. So they went into great detail on many of these technologies. And in fact, ISRO had already developed, space applications that had already developed uh, two uh, airborne scanners. One was a thermal scanner and the other one was a multispectral scanner. So this whole technology of the mirrors, of the rotating the mirrors, of the detectors, all these had been exper experimented with. So the idea was therefore to actually uh, have in IRS a, a multispectral scanner and uh, perhaps uh, again some sort of a Viricon camera almost uh, similar to what uh, Landsat was but there was a nice uh, twist to that tale and the twist was this at that time uh, you know spot was also uh, coming up and spot people realized that if they want to get anywhere they want to break away from the uh, the, the scanner kind of technology and the ccd technology was coming up at that time so they planned to create a, a satellite with uh, the sensors with only uh, ccds so they had a 20 meter resolution multispectral uh, camera using ccds and a 10 meter resolution camera with the, which was panchromatic that's you know normal black and white 
so some of the engineers here in fact uh, particularly the person who was in charge of the development of sensors dr george joseph he uh, said that why not we try this out so they, what they did was they first built a small camera which they put on an aircraft and flew it and uh, the results were good so then they made a case that uh, instead of putting a scanner which has a lot of uh, mechanical uh, issue, uh, you know components and these could always lead to failure why not we also go with a ccd and that's how the first indian remote sensing satellite which was launched i think in 1981 carried uh, uh, a camera called the lis the lis stood for linear imaging self scanning Uh, device and uh, it had a 70 meter resolution and in addition they had two more cameras also uh, using the same technology which we call list 2 which had 35 meter resolution and uh, the interesting thing was that these two cameras and the third camera that's the list 1 camera they all looked at the same area so in effect you had a 70 meter image and then that 70 meter image also was replicated in 35 meters using four frames of the list 2 so this was a, you know a fantastic thing at that time and perhaps apart from spot we were the only other country uh, using uh, ccd technology for uh, doing remote sensing yeah that is uh, actually a fascinating story in that sense uh, as to how mature uh, remote sensing was in india at a particular given point of time you talked about uh, you know analyzing data and so on so today of course there's a lot of uh, computer aided gis and uh, data analytics tools that have been around what was the early days of analyzing data and what would you you know what was the interface like and how would people analyze data especially given so much data spread over such large geographical area yeah that was very interesting because uh, in those days uh, you know you didn't have this uh, kind of uh, Uh, handy computers like lab, you know, like we have today. Uh, so you know, the PDPs used to rule the uh, rule the computing world, and uh, some people started uh, trying to uh, create a small image processing system around the PDP. And uh, later on, of course, we went in for a bigger mainframe called the Vax Eleven Seven Eighty. But that's another part of the story. Most of the applications at that time were visual uh, visual analysis. so they would look at the color tone texture shape context and uh, then interpret what they were seeing uh, so mainly we worked with the, actually you know either uh, diapositives or uh, prints and uh, you could enlarge uh, these landsat images and as well as uh, list uh, one images about four times so essentially what you got was the original data would be 1 uh, 1 million uh, scale 1 is to 1 million So expanded to what about one is to two hundred fifty thousand, and then they would actually either put the image on a light table and on that they would put a tracing sheet and then they would actually with a pencil trace out the features. Uh, and then we uh, one of the things that some uh, we uh, talked to some people in the optics industry and they came out with what we call the large format optic enlarger and that is an enlarger in which you could shove in a, a one of these uh, huge. Uh, diapositives you know those days the diapositives used to be about i think 8 uh, by 8 inch you know typically like the aerial photography uh, frames and then you would, could expand that uh, and uh, uh, to about four uh, four times and then again the same thing put down a piece of uh, tracing paper and then with a pencil trace out the various uh, features 
and then of course the other great thing was then you have to know what features you are tracing so you did what is called this the ground truth so you went down to the field and uh, you actually uh, uh, verified what was that feature parallelly of course as i said uh, we were doing a little bit of work on the uh, digital data because uh, nasa was supplying us uh, with both the print uh, the diapositives as well as the digital data from the landsat uh so these uh, were being used by the people and uh, image analysis as such was still limited to a few laboratories uh, maybe uh, space application center was one of them and the national uh, remote sensing center which at that time was with the department of uh, science and technology uh, they were also uh, using uh, image analysis but it had really not taken off at that point of time uh it took off when we started with the irs satellite data because there of course digital data we we had both uh, hard copies as well as digital data and uh, what we had done was we had created uh, four centers four or five centers which we called as the regional remote sensing service centers which were equipped with the uh, uh, digital computers and image processing systems Uh, and uh, then these were the, then uh, people could come there and uh, use the digital data do the image analysis image enhancement and all this kind of stuff so that's how we tried to you know spread out the use of digital technology uh, but i in my opinion the real uh, philip to digital image processing and use of satellite uh, data in a digital form came once we had got the workstations you know the sun workstations and then i think apollo was another one which you don't hear of much now silicon graphics also was another one and then of course came the pcs and the powerful pcs once and they once they came out they could very easily handle this kind of data as well as the kind of uh, software in fairly good speed you could do a um, for example a multi a, what we call the mxl analysis in about maybe one scene in about half an hour or so so that's how the whole thing uh, developed what was the early days like in terms of uh, reaching out to some of the users of course i would imagine that uh, not many end users would know these uh, the possible applications that they could use uh, yeah one of the features that uh, in the indian space program uh, indian the remote sensing program specifically was that uh, we were very conscious that you know this was not something that only isro can do and uh, therefore actually even before irs 1a was launched um, both uh, security dos that's the professor dhawan and security dst that's uh, professor mgk menon both of them got together and uh, they formulated a program called the nnrms the natural uh, national natural resources management system and uh, uh, the they pulled in the planning commission and the planning commission made a committee which was called as the preparatory committee of the nnrms and uh, then uh, each of the major user departments like department of agriculture department of uh, steel and mines uh, department of science and technology uh, geological survey of india every all the agencies the secretaries of these departments were part of the planning committee and uh, there were similar committees formed uh, comprising of both isro people and the uh, domain experts in each of these departments and for one year uh, we conducted a lot of experiments with them and uh, these experiments was called the joint uh, uh, experiments program and the idea was twofold one is basically to decide what would be the bands for the irs 
and the second was what could be the possible applications of the irs so all this was uh, uh, do, being done even before irs was launched and then uh, before irs was launched we started planning for what was called, what we called as the irs utilization program and uh, in that again the same thing was done and that's basically our contacts which we had with all these people uh, we got together and then we chalked out a program of how actually to use uh, the satellite data for the various applications and uh, how to take things forward basically and we saw that there were some people who were pretty uh, advanced like for example geological mapping and then the semi operational ones were uh, where the people didn't have such a good grip but still they uh, you know they they knew how to do it so for example land use uh, mapping was one of them then you had the experimental ones where uh, you know we had to try out a lot of stuff and uh, this was for example typically crop uh, forecasting was one of them uh, but not really forecasting but crop area detection and measurement and the tdp kind of thing was you know crop yield uh, modeling which required a lot of uh, on ground experimentation as well as experimentation with the satellite data so this is the way we prepared but the main point to, to stress is that we always carried the end user with us we never did something and then waved it about and said hey look uh, what a great thing we have done we always had the end users with us right from even before the satellite was uh, launched was there a lot of thought given into how will it scale nationwide and uh, you know given that how diverse the country is and how diverse the user base can be yeah uh, that was definitely a part of the uh, planning uh, because uh, as i said uh, one was that um, you know all the departments were involved which were the central government uh, also the state governments were involved and uh, we had set up five different centers for uh, helping the states to uh, uh, you know get into this technology and we had kept the centers in places like jodhpur and uh, then dehradun Uh, then uh, Kharagpur in the IIT campus, uh, Nagpur, uh, and in Bangalore. Uh, so these five centers were supposed to uh, service the end users from the five uh, regions. And as I had told before, that the NNRMS we had started with the joint experiments program, and then after that we had uh, done the uh, IRS utilization program. And the entire work of the IRS utilization program was getting done by these five centers as well as the two centers, ISRO center that is uh, Space Application Center and uh, National Remote Sensing Center. So, uh, in uh, the idea, of course, uh, was that. uh this was the way to go and uh, the, the states would need to pick up uh, on each of these uh, applications so we also st- then started visiting each and every one of the states and encouraging them to set up their own centers remote sensing centers and this went on for quite some time and finally we i think we got almost every state in the country to set up their own remote sensing application centers Uh, which now have become uh, state space application centers because they added the communication part of uh, it also uh, because the communication was being used for the distance learning programs and things like that but then i'm getting too far ahead in the story so this was what was there and the uh, the preparatory committee of the nnrms was converted into what is called as the planning committee of the nnrms so the idea was that they would oversee 
uh, how this technology was uh, spreading into the uh, all over the country. Uh, we also had uh, exercises in trying to uh, uh, get uh, uh, educational institutions to also include uh, these technologies uh, as subjects in their course material. Some of them had already done it, like for example, um, uh, anybody who would study geology would already uh, have uh, learnt about at least aerial photography, if not satellite image processing. But uh, uh, they started also formulating separate uh, geospatial courses like you know remote sensing and gis courses uh, were started off in so many institutions i think how many i don't, I don't remember now maybe around that time we counted something about 140 institutions which are having uh, these kind of courses so the uh, if you see the effort it was very much coordinated you had the end user agencies very much in mind uh, you had the education sector very much in mind so that you know they would produce the people who would then uh, staff many of these centers and uh, then nisro had made a commitment uh, that they would always continue to provide uh, this kind of satellite services so it was all very nicely put together did it succeed well i think in part it did for example today you have the malanovis center in uh, with the ministry of agriculture which is basically carrying forward the crop production and estimation, uh, yield estimation effects uh, projects which were uh, started in IRS uh, 1A and which now they have operationalized it and they've spread it to many more crops including horticulture crops and so forth. So that is one big success story. Uh, use of this technology for geological survey, for groundwater definitely is very much being used. ONGC uses this technology uh, very heavily. The point that I must say is that, you know, we were looking only at the government agencies. We really did not look at the private industry. I personally feel that that was a lacuna. What we were looking at the private industry was basically to provide services or at the best uh, provide some hardware. So like, you know, there was a large format optical enlarger, which I talked about. So there was a company in uh, Hyderabad, which was licensed to produce these in large numbers. Uh, we uh, the we prepared an image processing uh, library, and we tried to uh, interest uh, some of the uh, computer companies. Like uh, one was HCL, and the other was a smaller company, I think uh, Spec Systems, uh, to take take on this uh, the, um, manufacturing of this hardware and software. Because in those days, uh, the PC was not strong enough, was not uh, powerful enough in terms of number crunching. So there was a separate hardware which you had to attach to the PC to be able to do the number crunching. Uh, these uh, met with not very great success because you know the industry by the time the foreign uh, companies had come out with much better stuff. As I told you, uh, you know there were a lot of uh, workstations uh, going around, uh, you know, uh, running Unix, and uh, you could do, use them very nicely for this kind of work. Uh, but all these efforts were definitely put in. Some succeeded, some didn't. But I guess uh, that that is the way. I, I don't think we have made any great mistakes, except that we did not uh, uh, involve industry as much as we should have. One of the interesting debates that you could also look at is actually the evolution of technology in terms of the different bands uh, of interest in remote sensing. When you look at uh, you know several other countries around the world, you see a lot of the bands maturing in terms of the technology investment so for example let's look at uh, sar for example synthetic aperture radar 
you look at the investment made in sour technology in either us or europe it's at a very early stage and in india i think we were right with them in the optical bands through the last you know until the last maybe 10 years or so but then uh, the evolution in other bands like let's say sar or so on so they have taken significantly more amount of time to evolve in india as a outcome in remote sensing why do you think this is this gap came up i think this gap came up for two reasons one was that uh, we were, the technology itself was very very uh, uh, different from the optical technology Uh, the other was we are not very sure how much uh, of it uh, we could really uh, put into the applications areas uh, actually we had started uh, with the sar a long time ago in fact uh, uh, one of the things that we were doing uh, i remember uh, we we had first made a airborne uh, side looking airborne radar uh, which didn't have the uh, the cap- capability of uh, synthesizing the aperture uh but nevertheless it gave uh, a jolly good amount of data uh, which people could use but then you had to understand what that data was uh, it was much easier to understand optical data because you know it's uh, more or less like a photograph whereas a slar data the side looking airborne radar data was not like a uh, was not like that for example if you had a water body and the water body was agitated it would look like a field whereas if you had a water body which was very quiet it would look like a water body right because no signal would come back to you so these kind of technological difficulties were there and of course uh, the slar was uh, too primitive an instrument uh, we then moved on to the sar uh, and uh, that uh, again we pre- prepared a airborne version which is still uh, operational and we did use it but then flying uh, a, a sar is quite a job Uh, much more difficult than flying uh, just cameras or something like that uh, and then translating that technology to the uh, you know to the space that involved a huge amount of uh, technology uh, mastering and uh, we could do it uh, ultimately with the uh, resat uh, and resat uh, was a success uh, to some extent Uh, but then again there was a hiatus because uh, again the problem was uh, you know uh, we really did not get that kind of uh, response on the uh, use of uh, sar data but as you see the way the things have evolved now it's really the uh, military part of it which is uh, really picked up and perhaps that's the way it should be um, so the current uh, one which was launched a few days ago i mean i mean that that's i think pretty state of the art when you look at the resolutions and the bands and so on so and the map that to the current state of the art uh, technologies at least on the civilian bit uh, i think isro's uh, capability and technology were uh, on par uh, almost uh, until the year 2000 and so and then there was some divergence after that and then now they are kind of catching up in terms of civilian uh, optical resolutions how did the gap come up and i think the gap really was because of the regulation Uh, you know initially we were not allowed even to uh, share the uh, you know the pan data from irs 1c1d which is about 8 uh, or 9 meter uh, resolution uh, and black and white not even multispectral we were not allowed to share that with the public uh, it had to go through a, a, a you know a process of uh, checking by the military and so forth 
and uh, therefore that kind of you know it uh, slowed down the application of this high resolution data technologically we were there we could have uh, actually launched uh, high resolution satellites uh, way back uh, in fact i was discussing uh, this many years ago i was discussing this with kiran kumar and he said that you know we are ready with the technology but the problem is we need to go ahead and that's where the problem came finally it evolved into what is called as the tes technology uh, evaluation satellite it was called that was one of the high resolution satellites and we were uh, getting uh, resolutions uh, you know close to a, a meter in, from that one and then of course we went into cartosats cartosat uh, 1 was 2.5 meters cartosat 2 was 1 meter and then so forth luckily they have uh, changed the regulation and now up to and including 1 meter is clear so that doesn't have to go through the defense mechanism uh, it can be sold to the public directly uh, but so therefore cartosat 2 uh, cartosat 1 data is now should be freely available but then again there is a hitch what is the hitch the hitch is that uh, because cartosat 1 uh, is a stereoscopic satellite so you can create a, a digital elevation model ah but digital elevation models are regul- by regulation cannot be shared so you know these kind of regulatory issues are really killing the uh, technology rather than anything else as far as technology is concerned we are really up there when you look at again uh, you know the end user perspective uh, to 1999 2000 is when the big uh, military standoff between india and pakistan happened in kargil uh, i was thinking that you know one of the primary uses of remote sensing in its early days of course was uh, purely military why did it take so long for uh, you know the indian military or somebody to say we need more satellites and more high resolution satellites and especially a very big awakening after an incident like kargil and not before that oh no the the awakening uh, was much earlier much much earlier in fact uh, we were training uh, people from the defense services to set up uh, what is now known as the dipac uh, but we, well, we were training them and not only in satellite remote sensing but also in uh, uh, communications intelligence and so forth so it was very much there and uh, i believe that uh, they also had access to a lot of high resolution data not necessarily from india so one of the uh, interesting aspects uh, of uh, what is happening today is uh, the total change from government to private actors around the world and in fact uh, a lot of the private actors having more uh, assets in space and remote sensing than the government assets themselves i guess nobody saw this uh, coming in any uh, any institutional level and in any governments around the world maybe 20 30 years ago right yeah that's true but uh, we were working with the for example you know after we uh, successfully launched rs 1a uh, 1b Uh, actually uh, we went into a uh, tie up with eosat that was the company i think it was lockheed martin and uh, one more company and they had set up this company called eosat and they were going to come up with a 1 meter resolution satellite and uh, uh, they were interested in uh, marketing our satellite data and uh, actually what they had was they had a huge uh, you know menu card starting with the aerial data and then their high resolution data and then the indian satellite data and then going on to landsat and so forth so uh, you know uh, we were working with them right i don't know how far back yeah antrix uh, actually uh, when, when it was started one of the first things that they did uh, my friend sampath was there at that time as executive uh, director and uh, you know uh, the 
tie up with the USAT for marketing of uh, Indian remote sensing satellite data was one of the big things that had happened. And of course, USAT got bought up by uh, space imaging. The, the uh, connection still continued. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, the, our image processing, I mean, the, the, uh, the basic data processing software, which we had developed for IRS, we had gone and installed that in so many other stations all over the world. For example, we had definitely, uh, you know, as part of the USAT agreement, we had uh, installed it in uh, Denver in their Earth station. Uh, we installed it in Japan. All oh, five, six countries were receiving uh, data directly from Indian remote sensing satellites. So we did have this idea that uh, the private industry would be coming in in a big way. But uh, in India, it was not the case. Uh, we did not uh, foresee uh, an Indian company. Uh, launching a satellite for remote sensing, uh, you know, from Indian soil. Uh, that has not as yet happened. What do you think about actually the, the downstream segment? Because of course, you know, launching a satellite is very challenging and you need to have a lot of money and a lot of technical know-how and so on. But uh, how enabled does the Indian geospatial industry on the downstream stand in terms of you know, in terms of technological progress, in terms of using satellite data, or even uh, you know exporting services uh, based on satellite data. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, exporting has been going on for a very long time. Uh, you know, I mean, if you take uh, companies like uh, Spec Systems, uh, or even uh, what is now known as Scient. Earlier, I don't remember what it was called. Mohan Reddy's company, uh, RMSI, Tata Consultancy. All these people were doing a lot of offshore work. Uh, in fact, there was a very interesting item uh, which appeared in an Australian uh, geospatial magazine which said that if India uh, concentrates all its efforts on its own uh, data and does not do the work for uh, the outsourcing, then the outsourcing people would be uh, in sore straits because they would not get the information that they needed. So this was the kind of you know involvement of Indian industry in outsourcing. And uh, today, what I find is that the Indian industry is doing uh, extremely well as far as applications are concerned. And they're doing it independent of, you know, I mean, ISRO. And unfortunately, independent of ISRO means they're not using ISRO data. They are using Sentinel data. They are using Landsat data. They're not using ISRO data for, I mean, I mean, it's the cost or the delays in delivery or whatever may be the reason. Uh, when I talk to a lot of my friends in new space, they just give me a smile. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, uh, that's one area where uh, ISRO is failed. But as far as the Indian industry is concerned, I have high hopes and they're doing very well. They're doing very well, both offshore and now within the country. Yeah, that's an interesting point because uh, you talked a lot about, uh, you know, the keeping up with technology and keeping up with end users and a lot of these things. Uh, I fail to understand why, you know, we could not replicate a lot of the open data models uh, that were either in Landsat or even with uh, Copernicus in, in Europe. Why was this, uh, you know, this lacuna coming up in, in terms of data distribution and making the data available to the public in India? I, I really don't understand it. In fact, even when I was in ISRO, one of the things that I kept telling is that, you know, why are we collecting data using the taxpayer's money and then telling the taxpayer you have to pay for the data? I mean, this is not fair. You need to make it uh, free, if not free, at least very, very cheap. 
but they have done some things like you know if, if the data is more than a year old then it is uh, priced at half the price uh, of course now you have bhuvan uh, bhuvan also allows uh, some amount of data downloading but these are uh, not uh, sufficient effort i find lot of education institutions that after i retired i was teaching in two three places and everywhere you know the cry was where is the data where is the data and uh, you know now they found uh, landsat and uh, copernicus and they are happy they don't bother so you know at this level where the students are uh, beginning to use remote sensing in their projects and then they go to uh, copernicus or to landsat and they ignore irs uh, why because uh, the data is not easily available i mean why will a student who has a limited amount of time waste his time in collecting data when we can when he can get it much more easily from other sources so it's inexplicable i don't understand it i've spoken about it written about it i guess i don't make much of a impact is this uh, something a policy decision of uh, isro or something that uh, the government of india outside of isro has to take uh, to make such changes my personal opinion is that uh, isro can take that can take a decision after all the remote sensing data policy isro only formulated it yeah you had to get it through cabinet but that's uh, not a, such a difficult uh, thing to do uh, making the data free uh, should should not be such an important uh, decision uh, it can be done uh, i don't know why they are not doing it you see how it started was in the good old days when the national remote sensing center was uh you know uh, receiving landsat data and then irs data and then they were processing and they were a grant in aid institution to the department of space so they said that you know we need to be self sufficient so we're going to charge for the data uh and of course then they were limited to charging only for the actuals which means basically the uh, what you have put uh, put out of your pocket but it was not uh, you know economical because uh, being a semi government organization and now it's a fully government organization you know they, they, they are overstaffed uh, so you know how will they even recover any cost cost they don't recover any cost but still they go on charging i, I just fail to understand this you know uh, one of uh, one of my persons who uh, had gone abroad to install the uh, data processing software for irs in one of the european stations he came back and told me that uh, you know sir they, they have just four people operating the entire system the sat the data reception the data processing everything they're handling with four people so that is what you know if it goes into private in the industry that that can happen uh, we most probably have about 40 people doing the same thing so where is the how do you recover the cost you just can't recover the cost and now i realize once uh, it has become a national remote sensing center uh, is it totally a part of isro so it's totally being funded by isro so where is the cost where is the question of cost recovery it's all taxpayers money make it free you already talked about uh, bhuvan and uh, that being the geospatial portal and uh, you know satellite data from india being made available there there's a lot of efforts across the world that are independent so landsat has its own efforts you know europe has copernicus india has uh, bhuvan and in its own irs program and the chinese have some the japanese have some there has never been an effort of uh, consolidating all data sources into one single global repository right yeah it's never been done uh, at the worst what was tried was uh, first you had the cios Uh, the committee on earth observation systems we basically tried to standardize on the uh, techno technical part of it and then uh, now you have geo 
a group on earth observation they are also trying to do that and uh, you know uh, uh, they are also uh, basically it was barbara ryan who started the whole thing particularly with landsat and she has been pushing of course she is no longer with geo now but she has been pushing for uh, people to come and share data and uh, i don't see much of any sharing uh, that is really happening other than landsat and uh, copernicus uh, indian data they say bhuvan and you can take it from bhuvan but bhuvan is so slow and why bhuvan slow because government of india says don't put this data on the cloud so it's all on a set of uh, servers uh, in india and our connectivity as you know is not all that great so you know even in within india people find it difficult to download the data so leave alone uh, anybody from outside so there are again these kind of uh, silly issues which uh, are holding us back uh, but uh, what your question of uh, you know putting everything together globally uh, is something that uh, i was thinking that perhaps the un ggim would do that Uh, but no they are not addressing that issue either uh, so i am not very sure whether it can ever take off on the weather side i think they have on on the weather data that the meteorological data i think there is a common resource uh, global resource which uh, people can access but uh, on the remote sensing that is uh, this kind of land remote sensing i have not seen uh, any attempt to put it together Yeah, so the only other one that I can uh, recall is the UN Spider, which is for the disaster management system and uh, requesting imagery for disaster areas. Um, yeah, when yeah. you look at a lot of the end user applications today, you know one of the key things that is available to an end user is a smartphone, and uh, the legacy applications that are built for geospatial, you know, they were not really directly end user focused. So let's take an example. For example, the you know isro application with the fishery survey of india of trying to provide uh, the potential fishing zones uh, it's an excellent application when it terms of uh, how the data is collected and how the usefulness for the uh, fishing community and so on but uh, for example today there is a, a smartphone where you don't need to then use a middleman in the process where which is the you know the fishery survey of india who then have to then transmit the data or have uh, that sent to the end user you have today the smartphone which is directly available potentially to many of the people uh, to to get that as a direct g to c or government to citizen application why do we not see a lot of this uh, architecture of geospatial uh, applications today in uh, many of the isro programs uh, isro programs yes uh, um, oh well they do have a bhuvan on the on the smartphone if uh, <laughs> if you want to no uh, they have bhuvan on smartphone so in principle you whatever you can do on the desktop you can also do on a smartphone uh, but that's not really the issue the real issue is uh, you know you need to get uh, data into the hands of the end a uh, real end user and the real end user is not another government department the real end user is the man uh, on the street or in the field you know um, so you have to make your applications that simple uh, where uh, any person with a smartphone or maybe a tablet can actually access the data from the portal use it to get the uh, answers to whatever questions he has and then you know go ahead and apply it uh, i don't think that uh, bhuvan is uh, even 
reached or you even made an attempt to reach at that level of uh, application i uh, recently if you are aware if you, uh, the, there was a portal which was launched called india observatory this was launched by a ngo called uh, foundation for ecological security and they are doing precisely this they have little apps on that and uh, you know the, the end user uh, he has a tablet uh, he can download that app and then the, he can have uh, things like you know find out uh, from his uh, field uh, what what are the problems that he has in the field or what he would like to plant there whether that will survive or not you know this little app that they have similarly they have apps which tells them uh, what are the government uh, government uh, facilities that are there or programs that are there which they can avail of uh, these are two of the apps i know and and they uh, they are uh, adding many more apps as they go on but this is essentially the effort by a ngo and uh, made open very recently in fact uh, it was done only uh, this month itself i think 20th of december it went online uh, you can have a look at it it's very interesting just go for www. Uh, india observatory one word .org uh, so these kind of efforts now are coming up independent of the government but of course they have to follow the government laws so they can't put high resolution satellite data uh, they can't uh, even share for example uh, data from survey of india though they are using it in the application but they can't put it uh, online uh, they have recently got permission from the registrar general of india to uh, put the census data online so they are now happy to be able to do that i personally believe that you know uh, the time for government doing all these things is all now gone now it has to be done at the level of uh, the private industry or at least you know the ngos and the target cannot be another government department the cover target has to be the man on the ground yeah that's uh, pretty interesting because when you look at a lot of the new frameworks that uh, you know for example here in europe uh, people are thinking about is uh, calculating very strongly possible metrics on uh, return on investment in especially the whole remote sensing realm and uh, there's been multiple studies that i see right now that are looking at uh, what is the return on investment on copernicus and you know one of the surveys that i came across said that uh, almost 50% people reported that they will uh, not use uh, you know, not pay for remote sensing data and will stop generating that application if copernicus data was not uh, available for free it's a staggering number when you think about it that 50% or more than 50% of the people will give up uh, you know providing a particular service if the data is not available for free and uh, the other bit is of course you know there's not really any kind of open data available on the metrics of usage of remote sensing data in india and how isro data is being used and what is the return on investment on uh, on any of this kind of information right yeah there's some studies are there uh, rather than now they are dated but there are studies there i know one study which was done by uh, isro itself uh, vice rajan chandrashekar and uh, i think uh, gopal from the hindu and uh, one more study which was done by a professor uh, in iit uh, in uh, madras university a, there is a huge amount of uh, uh, you know uh, benefit coming out but the benefit that comes out is uh, you know more from the new applications than from just replacing the old applications uh, i i have myself done a study in which uh, i have shown that uh, using the data from these two studies 
that uh, if you are selling the data then you are not even breaking breaking even if you are selling the data plus uh, you look at the immediate applications which are there then you just about break even but it, the real power of the data comes when you bring in new applications and uh, I think this is the lesson, and the, you know uh, what uh, you, the European study is saying that if if you don't um, if you start charging us for Sentinel, we will not do remote sensing. That precisely it it brings out the same point that the data must be free, uh, free and open. Uh, both things are there, and uh, because you know the amount of effort that a person has to spend in terms of using the data itself has a cost, which nobody seems to look at. There's uh, two big things that are coming into remote sensing. One is, of course, the cloud and integration of the cloud, and second is all the machine learning and uh, AI and all the other fancy things. Are we keeping up on this? Because currently, I don't see much of cloud integration into ISRO data, or even uh, haven't read any new papers that look at uh, focusing on machine learning or AI in terms of applications. For one thing, uh, as far as the cloud is concerned, as I told you, there is a policy issue uh, with the government data can be put on the cloud which uh, you know with all this uh, now data localization and all that what you're talking about it's going to be more and more difficult uh, because it, you, they treat the geospatial data as something uh, very secret and things like that and uh, so long as you do that uh, you know you can't put it on the cloud and uh, that's how you know uh, go and the can, can does not go on the cloud it can very much go but it doesn't go one possibility is okay if somebody like NIC comes out with a uh, Indian cloud offering and then whether we can use that. But that we have to see uh, as it evolves. As far as the use of AI, uh, big data analytics and all, again, uh, what you uh, have concluded is, uh, is what I have also concluded. Uh, as far as ISRO is concerned, I'm not seeing them using these uh, new technologies at all. I have quizzed many people, uh, but I don't see any. Uh, for example, you take this whole business of the crop forecasting, right? Uh, this is actually something that you know, which is demanding, crying out for application of big data analytics. But uh, I haven't seen uh, this being done. In fact, uh, I was talking to the director of the uh, Malanubis Center also. I didn't get a clear image of uh, you know what, what way they are also thinking in terms of these technologies. So yes, we are far behind on this. The other interesting aspect is uh, now you have some of these new space startups in India that is also planning to do remote sensing uh, in terms of upstream, as in a combination of uh, having their own satellites and also processing it on the ground. Do you think uh, we have a the necessary policy framework for them to be operational in India? No, I think uh, the, until and unless the Space Act comes in, uh, I don't think this. I don't see this uh, happening at all. And the Space Act is being delayed and delayed and delayed. What is the new version of the Space Act? Is something even I don't know. I had got an old version. I had made the comments on that also, but uh, after that, I don't know. Was the new act? So until the Space Act comes into play and is uh, you know uh, friendly towards these kind of private ventures i do not see this happening uh, very soon but on downstream i do see uh, new space doing a lot of good work a lot of good work and in in, in my opinion they have really overtaken whatever isro is doing now
So if you, let's say, you know, in a, in a situation where uh, some of these uh, new space actors that are up and coming started flying these satellites and started using this data and the space actors not yet there, you know, what could be the repercussions for them? Would you think that uh, most of these companies would then be going to company, you know, countries like uh, Singapore or US and setting up their bases there, but then just doing end user services in India based on a cloud or will they circumvent the whole route? If they, this is what normally happens. If you recall, uh, you know, the old business of uh, satellite broadcasting, uh, you know, the private companies uh, initially, you know, they were uh, creating videotapes and then, uh, you know, supplying those videotapes to us. Then they went off to Singapore and they were uploading from Singapore. Uh, it's only after the uh, rules changed in India that uh, they now upload from here. Uh, I see the same thing happening in remote sensing. I, already, in fact, uh, I mean, you are also aware. It's much easier to set up a company in Singapore or London or, you know, <laughs> wherever you are. Uh, you know, because they are much more, uh, you know, user-friendly and much more business-friendly than our Indian uh, rules. So, this is going to happen. Uh, this is going to happen. One of the more interesting things is actually the whole, uh, you know, integration of uh, geospatial into the whole Chinese foreign policy and uh, Chinese military as well. The, especially like the Belt and Road Initiative is one thing where you're thinking about an entire geospatial uh, corridor in itself, where uh, all the Belt and Road uh, countries can potentially start using uh, geospatial applications. Yes. That that's that's a fantastic uh, effort. Uh, you may not like it, but the way they are doing it is fantastic. On the other hand, you look at our uh, efforts in the SARC satellite, for example. Have you heard of any country which is using the SARC satellite? Uh, I don't see anybody using any SARC satellite. It is interesting, especially interesting because I think uh, given that the Chinese made this move, I think recently even the Japanese uh, came up with this proposal of having a central repository of imagery and they even made a certain announcement that even uh, state-of-the-art satellites like the ALOS data will be now made available for free. So you can see a lot of uh, even other countries uh, in the neighborhood uh, who are keeping up with the developments in China, you know, basically coming up with their own uh, changes and policy uh, prerogatives for that. Uh, and even I think now China has also increased the resolution to 0.5 meters. Uh, and in India, we still have uh, one meter resolution. Yeah, I mean, the, again, the same problem, uh, what I see is, is the regulation which is uh, acting as a big, uh, uh, you know, bump on the road. Uh, actually, we are producing data which is at uh, centimeter level, but you know, the civilians don't act, can't access it. It's only meant for the military. So do you think, uh, we talked a little bit about the Space Act. The Space Act was not uh, comprehensive at all in any sense in that, uh, in, in, it was, I think, you know, the Space Act would have been a great opportunity to consolidate a lot of different things that is in communication, in remote sensing, in navigation and, and so on, but then it did not really, you know, address anything in a very detailed manner. Um, do you think the Space Act should have been something that were chapter by chapter addressing each and every particular aspect of space and then, you know, could have gone into a lot of uh, the geospatial domain and addressed all of this kind of uh, information, uh, these kinds of, you know, things that are needed for giving an impetus for the data use in India? 
Yeah, I think so. That's one of the problems with the Space Act, uh, which I saw was, you know, they tried to make it all encompassing. Uh, you know, you, you also talked about the launchers, you also talked about satellites, you also talked about applications. The whole thing was uh, very confused. And uh, one of the things which I feel they should have done is that should have broken it up into specific segments. So you have one overall segment we know whether so whether we are uh, doing a launcher or a satellite or an application, you have a kind of common uh, set of uh, you know rules. And then for each of these areas, you sh they should have formulated different rules. And the same thing they should have done for the geospatial. Uh, there is a very interesting document which was uh, produced uh, by uh, a think tank, uh, which was I think chaired by Mohan Reddy, and you know it was started by my friend Sanjay uh, Kumar from uh, Geospatial Media. And uh, this think tank came out with a very uh, comprehensive, uh, you know, document on uh, geospatial uh, for the new India. That's I think is that what it's called. But there again, if you see, is you know they have identified the problems and everything and how geospatial can, can help. But in terms of implementation, the only thing uh, they have said is that there should be an apex committee which should be part of either Niti Aayog or uh, PMO's office, and which should have people from both government and industry and uh, so forth. Uh, and then you know almost as an afterthought uh, regulation wise they said uh, one meter data should be made free uh, i mean free to uh, deliver which it already is and uh, i think uh, map data should, one is to 25000 scale map data should also be made free uh, which is neither here nor there because uh, even if uh, it is made freely available the coastal areas and international boundary areas will still be remaining uh, you know, uh, out of the reach of uh, common persons Frankly speaking, I am a bit pessimistic about this uh, whole thing that is happening. Uh, I don't see anything great happening. It will be kind of incremental stuff. Okay, so earlier one meter data was not uh, free. Now one meter data has been freed, but half meter data is not uh, free. Oh, then maybe somebody will come up and say, okay, half meter data is also free, but 25 centimeter data is not free. You know, I mean, this kind of uh, small linear progression is not going to result in any kind of breakthrough so where do you see the future head you know what would you see 10 years from now how would you compare an indian ecosystem versus a you know a european or a, or a japanese or a chinese ecosystem very difficult question to answer i i am not very hopeful i am not very hopeful at all i think we could have done much much more uh, with the kind of infrastructure that we have and with the kind of uh, you know systems that we had set up uh, we should have been uh, as good, if not better, than China. Uh, today, we seem to have uh, missed the bus. I, and I don't see anything uh, great happening uh, in the next 10 years. Yeah, you will make a lot of satellites. Uh, they'll be used by the military forces. Uh, maybe some civilian use also will be there. Uh, you may have a few more uh, centers coming up, like the Malanavi Center in Ministry of Agriculture. You may have a few more centers coming up. Uh, but uh, I really don't uh, see any great breakthroughs happening uh, unless, uh, as I said, people take the bull by the horns and say, okay, this is what needs to be done.
let's uh, you know end this episode on a potentially high note uh, what would you think uh, is the recipe ahead in terms of uh, changes what uh, what would you say are the top changes then that need to be done for everything to open up in the future uh, these uh, limitation on the data particularly on the remote sensing data limitation on the map data these have to go uh, you know you protect yourself in other ways but you cannot simply protect yourself by denying denial is no kind of protection in my opinion uh, so that once the regulatory framework gets set up and then as i said the space act should get set up then uh, we will see definitely a huge amount of interest coming up not from the government but more from the private industry and i believe the private industry is raring to go all that they have all these little problems which have they have with the regulations you know the way of setting up these companies so all these issues relating to you know uh, having the company in india or not in india all these things you know if they are addressed head on then the things will improve geospatial will become a, a bigger part of our lives than they are today i mean today you know people use google i mean without thinking they use google if so therefore you the people are not uh, illiterate in that sense you know they they understand geospatial all you need to do is basically make applications which are people oriented and definitely uh, it will work you know i am reminded of a saying uh, by ck prahlad you know the management guru and uh, his uh, he used to say address the lowest part of the pyramid common people you know the farmers the the you know the people working on the land working in the water address them address their needs and you will find that there is huge amount of profit in that and that's what uh, geospatial if it has to go forward that's the uh, market that they have to address if you do that then perhaps india will once again show the way to the rest of the world it's been really insightful learning a lot of things and i hope uh... the audience enjoys uh, as much as i did uh, thank you very much arup for your time thank you nan thanks very much for this opportunity thank you for staying until the end if you have any comments or suggestions please write to curator@newspaceindia.com please consider sharing this episode with any friends or family who may be interested in learning about india's space activities if you would like to stay in touch with the new space india community please use the link in the description to join the new space india telegram group feel free to also suggest guests for any future episodes a new episode of the new space india podcast is released every other friday do subscribe to the podcast using apple google or any other podcasting platforms you may use until the next episode thank you